Today's scripture is from Esther 4, 5 through 16. Then Esther called for Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hatak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hatak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hatak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Will you pray with me? Father, as we come to your word this morning, this fascinating story speaks so well to our experience of life. I pray, Lord, that we might be reminded through your word, through your spirit, just how good you are, how good you are to us, the love that you have for us, the delight that you've taken us through Christ. Lord, it's so easy to forget that in the midst of life, and so often we interpret your love for us in, in terms of life circumstances. And so I pray that today especially for people here this morning who are discouraged, who are burned out, who are frustrated. Maybe their faith's grown cold. Lord, we pray that your spirit would stir them, would stir all of us to give us a vision of who you are, the love you have for us, of what you're doing in this world, what you're doing in our lives, and the part that you're inviting us to play in that. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as Chad mentioned, we're spending the month of June working through the book of Esther, and this is week two. If you weren't here last week, I'll give as brief of a recap as I can. The book of Esther is basically a book about what it means to live faithfully in exile. Uh, The Jews, they had lived for hundreds of years in Jerusalem, and then around 600 BC, the Babylonians came, they captured them, took them captive, and removed them from their homeland. Shortly after that, the Babylonians 
uh, were overtaken by the Persians. And so what had happened is in a period of about 100 years, you had a whole bunch of Jewish people living in a foreign land under Persian rule. And the whole book is about how do you live faithfully towards God when you've been marginalized in society. And so I think that there's some some words for us as the, the church in America and words about our future potentially, about what it looks like to live faithfully from the margins. And that's what the book of Esther is all about. And there are four main characters. If you're coming new to the book, there's a lot of names and it can easily get confusing, but there are really only four people that you need to remember. Four names that are central to the story. Number one is Esther. Esther is a Jewish girl who was kind of forgotten and overlooked. No one really paid much attention to her. And then through a strange series of events in God's providence, she became queen. And we talked about that last week. Esther's uncle is a guy named Mordecai. He's also really important in this story. He's a Jew. And I think Mordecai, all in all, was a pretty good guy. He had some moral failings like we all do, but he was trying to live faithfully in exile in Persia. Then you have the king of Persia, uh, who in the text his name is Ahashu. I spent so much time trying to memorize this. You just say it fast and no one knows you say it wrong, but I totally failed on that. Ahashu Eris. Uh, we know him by the name Xerxes. It's the same guy, just two different names. And then there's a fourth character that we're introduced to today, and that's Haman. And Haman is the real bad guy in the story. He's the real antagonist. And so what I want to do, looking at chapters three and four, I want to break it down into three acts, and I'll reveal the acts as we go along. But I want to talk about Haman's rise to power, because it's crucial for the plot of the story. And this is where the plot and the story begins to take shape. And to understand this man, Haman's rise, we have to go back to the very, very end of chapter two. There's a brief story in the midst of the story that's really important for the narrative of, as a whole, especially as we're looking to the week's Ahead, But at the end of chapter 2, as Esther is serving as queen, we're told in verse 21 that in those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, and when the text says he was sitting at the king's gate, that doesn't mean that he was just relaxing like by a wall around you know, the king's castle. That was actually a way of speaking about serving in the king's administration. It would be like saying they were serving or sitting in the White House. And so Mordecai, what we're learning here is Mordecai, he is a Jew, but he's serving in the administration of Xerxes. And in Jeremiah 29, God had told those that were going to be living in exile, he said, when you're in exile, seek the good of the city, and in its welfare, you'll find your welfare. And so I think that's what Mordecai is doing here, is he's trying to do good in the city. And we learn that as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Than and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told it to the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles and the presence of the king. And so at this point in the story, and I think the, the narrator, as they're, you know, putting this together. They're putting it together in such a way that at this point you're looking and you're saying, okay, so God's people, they're living in exile, but God hasn't forgotten them. 
He's risen Esther up. She's queen through a strange series of events, but she's in a place of power. And now Mordecai, he discovers this plot and he tells Esther, and it's all written down in her name and his name of what he's done. And, you know, there's not much of a better way of getting on the good side of a king than warning him of a potential assassination plot. And so it's all coming together, and it's looking like, oh, we see what God's doing here. He's putting both Mordecai and Esther into a position of power so that they can seek the good, yes, of Persia, but of God's people, and they can serve as faithful witnesses to God and powers of great influence. And it all seems like everything is going really, really well. But then in the very next verse, we're told that after King, after these things, after Mordecai does this great act, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And the narrator's trying to do something here. After you read of this great act, you expect to read, and after this, King Ahasuerus promoted Mordecai and set him above everyone else. But it's not Mordecai. It's Haman, the Agagite. You can just tell from the way that sounds, he's probably not a very good guy. Well, in saying that he's an Agagite, what that means is he was a descendant of King Agag, who was the king of the Amalekites in the days of Saul. And you can read about it in 1 Samuel 15. But what the author is doing here is he's showing us Haman's heritage, that he's an Amalekite. And the Amalekites were one of the Jews' oldest and most bitter enemies. If you'll remember after the Exodus, after God miraculously delivers the people from their slavery in Egypt, and he's leading them to the promised land, the first people who attack them on their journey are the Amalekites. And they're brutal. We read about this attack in Deuteronomy 25 when Moses says, remember what Amalek did to you on the way out as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. This tells us something about the Amalekites. The Jews are exhausted and they're weary on their journey to the promised land. And what do the Amalekites do? Do they come out and meet them? No, they come up behind them. And in attacking a weary and tired people from the rear, who are they attacking? Who are they killing? The young, the old, those with disabilities. I mean, this was really an act of terror on their part. They wanted to totally demoralize God's people. They're brutal. For anyone who would have, any Jew who would have read this story, when they hear that Haman was an Agagite, all of this would have been brought to mind. You see, in mentioning Haman's heritage, the narrator is revealing something of his character and also foreshadowing some of what's to come. But I think even more than that, the way that the, the author puts this together, the author is intentionally trying to highlight the injustice and the unfairness of what just happened. That Mordecai saves the king, and the king repays him by putting one of the worst, most brutal enemies in complete control over the kingdom. It's confusing. It's a strange turn of events. You read it, you think it doesn't make sense, it doesn't seem fair, fair, it leads you to ask, where is God in this? And that's the whole point. That's the whole point. 
That's the question that Esther is trying to answer for us. It's what Esther is all about. That question, where is God? You know, in the book, in his book, God and Politics and Esther, Rabbi Yoram Hazoni notes that for the rabbis of old, when they considered the eternity of the Bible's teaching, they asserted that there were two portions of Scripture that could never be abolished, the books of Moses and the book of Esther. He goes on to write that more space is devoted in rabbinic literature to commentary on Esther than to any other work in the Bible besides Genesis. Now, I'm a Bible nerd, but that's really intriguing to me. That you have the books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, kind of the big ones, right? Genesis, some important things happen there. Creation, the fall, the flood, Babel calling Abraham, forming a people. Then you have Exodus, God delivering and redeeming his people from their slavery, performing all sorts of miracles, giving the law, all this amazing stuff. Like when you read the books of Moses, it's filled with the miraculous and God is front and center. And then you come to Esther and there are no miracles and God's not even mentioned. And I think that's why the book was valued so much. Karen Jobes, who wrote a wonderful commentary on Esther, she says that the complete absence of God from the text is the genius of the book. Why? Because Esther speaks to the life that we live most of the time. Genesis and Exodus, they're amazing, and I thank God that it's recorded for what God did there. Most of us don't see God performing dramatic miracles all the time. I'm not saying they don't happen, but that's not where most of us live. Most of us live in an ordinary world that, yeah, an ordinary life that sometimes life's mundane, but oftentimes it's strange and confusing. Oftentimes life doesn't make sense and it feels unfair. Can I get an amen from anyone? Yeah. It's bizarre. Things happen and you're like, what is going on? Maybe you can relate with Mordecai. Maybe you feel like you've been faithful, but you've been overlooked or pushed aside, or you feel like God's forgotten you. I think about the couples in our church who try for years to get pregnant, and they're unable to, and then maybe finally they are able to get pregnant, and then they lose the child to miscarriage. Like, what's that about? I talked with a pastor friend this week, uh, who's preaching this text, and I called him, and we were talking, he said, yeah, it's so strange, man, I had to perform a funeral for a 24-year-old who died of a heart attack. He was a believer, so it's like I was able to hold forth such great hope at the funeral, but it's really hard to preach a funeral for a 24-year-old who dies of a heart attack. Like Life, it's confusing, and it's strange, and this isn't said enough at times from the pulpit. It's not said enough from Christians to just acknowledge, and sometimes life is really weird, and sometimes it feels very, very unfair. And I actually think that oftentimes in the church, there's this temptation to hold forth this know-it-all kind of Christianity that has all the answers and reasons for every problem and every form of suffering. And in a sense, that's not wrong. Like, we do have reasons and we do have tremendous promises. And we're going to look at those promises today and in the weeks to come. But 
as we wait and long for the day when God makes all things new and rights every wrong, we live in a world that's very confusing and strange. And we need to be able to admit that. Esther, Esther shows us that God oftentimes is hidden. But even though he's hidden, he's never absent. And so in his hiddenness, when we experience injustices or strangeness or things that seem unfair or bizarre, Esther is a book that tells us not how to avoid those things, not how to get around them, but how to walk through them in faithfulness. And I think most of us, I think most of us when we pray, we're praying, God, get me around the injustices. Get me around the strangeness. Get me around the confusion. Esther doesn't tell us how to avoid it. Most of us, I mean, that's what we pray, right? Like, keep all bad things from ever happening to me. Esther doesn't have an answer for that. What Esther does is it tells us, when you find yourself in a strange place, not knowing the way forward, here's how you move through it. Faithful to God and his word. And so, Haman's rise, it teaches us about the hiddenness of God. And there are two kind of ways, two things that are in these two chapters that help us kind of see the way forward and moving through life, even though so often it feels so unfair and so bizarre and so strange and so confusing. We see something in Mordecai, we see something in Esther, but I'm going to focus on Mordecai first because what we see in Mordecai is he, he shows tremendous courage and it's a courage that's fueled by hope. Picking back up the story in chapter 3, after Haman gets this promotion, he's very, very proud of his new role. And part of his new role, and I, I think he probably went and bartered with Xerxes and made him sign this, but part of the new gig that he got is wherever he went, everyone had to bow down to him and pay homage to him. Wherever he went. When you saw him coming, everyone's on their faces before him. And everyone obeyed because everyone was terrified of who he was connected to and terrified of his power. Everyone, that is, except Mordecai. So Haman rolls in. Everyone else is bowing down. And Mordecai, I imagine him, this is just my imagination, but I just imagine him shaking his head like, I am not bowing before you. And it's a small act, but this is, this is the moment, this is the one act that the whole story turns on. This is the very center of the conflict that Mordecai refused to bow. And there's a lot of debate about why he, he refused to bow. I don't think it was spite. I don't think he refused to bow because I should be in that position. I think some of it is what we already talked about. Haman's in a gagite. But I think there's even more to it. And I think Mordecai knew what kind of man Haman was. It's interesting. You have to pay close attention when you read, but in chapters 1 and 2, King Xerxes is surrounded by counsel and advisors all the time. He's got all these people speaking in, helping him run the kingdom. And then when Haman comes on the scene, all of the counselors and advisors disappear, and it's just Haman. And then I won't give away the ending. You can read for yourself. But when Haman leaves the scene, which we'll talk about next week, all of a sudden Xerxes has this council and advisors, has a bunch of people around him. But in this moment, it's just Haman next to the king. He's trying to consolidate all power. And I think Mordecai looks at that and sees and knows what kind of man he is and knows what a man like that will do with power. I think he's terrified of it. 
And he had a right to be terrified. Because we read in verse 5 that when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. Fury is not strong enough. It was a murderous rage. I mean, he was filled with such anger that he didn't just want to see Mordecai put to death. He wanted to see all of the Jews whom Mordecai represented in his mind executed, slaughtered. And so Haman, you know, his pride bruised because Mordecai won't bow to him. He goes to Xerxes to make this case of why they should institute a full-scale genocide of the Jews in all of Persia. And he tells them, basically, the Jews are strange people. They, they obey their own laws. They don't obey our laws, which wasn't true. But then he goes on and says, like, they're a problem. If you really want me to rule your kingdom well, we got to deal with these people. And then to sweeten the deal, he offers Xerxes 750,000 pounds of silver in payment if Xerxes will allow him to exterminate. God's people. Xerxes, he kind of seems like fairly indifferent to what's going on, but eventually he's like, you know what, you can keep the money, do what you got to do. You're like, do as you wish here. And so Haman, he's got the green light. And so what he does next, and this is really important for the story, not so important for right now, what he does next is he rolls something called a purr, which is like a die or a lot that'll come up again later. And he rolls that to determine what date it will be when the genocide takes place. And he rolls it, and it turns out it's going to be 11 months from them, which might seem like a long time, but politically, that's actually kind of smart for them in a very sick and twisted way because you have 11 months to turn and sway public opinion against the Jewish people so that when the genocide comes, people aren't concerned or they're not fighting against you, but instead they're cheering you on. So all of this happens, and we're told in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 3 that this... This decree goes out, and it was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate. You think the author's trying to tell us something here. All the Jews, young and old, women and children, and one day, the 13th day of the 12th month. And so it goes from Mordecai letting the king know about this assassination plot, and then you're not even a chapter later, and all of a sudden, he, along with all of God's people, have a death warrant hanging over their head, and the clock is ticking. And when Mordecai hears about this order, he tears his clothes, he puts on sackcloth and ashes as a sign of mourning, and then he goes to the king gate. And because he, king's gate, and because he worked at the king's gate, he knew that there's no way he would be admitted in in that attire. They wouldn't let you in. If you want to go in, like you got to have the, the shirt and the tie and the collar and everything. But he goes anyway as an act of protest, and it's a tremendous act of courage. He goes and stands right outside the king's gate, and he just starts to cry and weep and wail. An act of tremendous courage. And I love it because he doesn't try to run. He, he's actually standing, you know, within feet of people who in 11 months will be authorized to murder him. But he goes and he cries and he wails. Tremendous faith. Now when Esther hears about Mordecai, or maybe she actually hears Mordecai screaming outside of the gate, she sends 
one of her attendants, Haytack, to talk and figure out what's going on. And so Mordecai sends word. He's like, this is what's happened. You might not know. This is what's going on. We're all going to die. You need to go talk to the king. And at first she refuses, and we'll look at that in a minute. But then Mordecai, he won't back down. And in verse 11, he tells her basically two things. He says, listen, God's going to save his people. And then what's probably the most famous verse in Esther, he says, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And I think what we see in and Mordecai, the courage and the boldness that he has to not bow down to this power-hungry guy, the courage and the boldness he has to go in sackcloth and ashes and stand outside the king's gate and weep and wail, I think it's all wrapped up where he finds that courage and that faith and that boldness. It's all wrapped up in those two words, who knows? Who knows? Mordecai is looking at a world that doesn't make sense And yet in the midst of that, he doesn't say, where is God? Instead, he says, who knows what God might be doing right now? Mordecai shows us the power of hope. Despite how things appear, he doesn't mistake God's hiddenness for his absence. And he's trusting. He says, God's going to save. And who knows, you might be a part of it. See, Mordecai is trusting that God is working for the good of his people in the midst of these terrible circumstances. And I think a huge part of what it means to live faithfully in a hostile world or in the margins is to be a people marked by hope. Hope gets a lot of airtime in the scriptures. And hope, it's not a personality trait. It's not something that's going to show up on your Enneagram or your Myers-Briggs like, well, I'm more hopeful. They're not as hopeful. No, hope in the Bible is a virtue. It's like honesty or faithfulness. It's something that you cultivate and you strengthen. And a huge part of what it means to live faithful is that we cultivate and strengthen hope in who God is and what he's promised And the fact that he's never going to leave us nor forsake us. That he's working all things together. Now, the saints of old called this providence. That's not a word we use a whole lot anymore. Providence providence and sovereignty are two words that are are real close. And I hear sovereignty a lot more in the church today. and, And that's fine. Like God is absolutely sovereign. And when we say God's sovereign, we mean that he rules over everything. That he's in absolute control. But the saints of old preferred much more to talk about God's providence than about his sovereignty. And the reason why is if we try to reconcile all the strangeness and the problems and the drama and the weirdness and unfairness of life, if we experience really, really hard things, but we say God is sovereign, it's easy for our minds to fill in the gap. Yeah, he's sovereign, but he just doesn't care. Or he's capricious. Or he's not thinking about what this is like. Or I'm just a pawn in some game. Providence, on the other hand, providence means not only that God is sovereign, but that he is sovereignly for us as his people. There are other religions that teach that their God is sovereign, but it's our faith and it's God's word that teaches that God is sovereign, he's in absolute control, and he's sovereignly for us. I mean, one of the most amazing promises in God's word 
that we feel like, hey, the game of life is rigged, and God's like, yep, in your favor, if you are in me. Yeah, you're not always going to see it. The game is rigged in your favor. Because I'm always working for the good of my people. Now, we can look back, we can read Esther, and it's easy for some of you are like, That's really, you know what my life's been like? I don't, but I've had a hard few weeks. I've had a whole lot of strange things and what I think are unfair things and bizarre. And we can, it's easy as a preacher, you know, we can read Esther and we have the whole book, and so it's like, what is God doing? Oh, I know, I'll turn the page and read it. Here's what he was doing, and here's how it all fits together. We have that privilege when we read that story. We don't have that privilege in life, though, do we? One old Puritan once said that providence is like a Hebrew word. It only makes sense when we read it backwards. It only makes sense when we have the perspective of time. When we can look back and say, oh, that's what he was doing. But we're not always going to be able to do that. Hence why hope is held up as a virtue, as something to cultivate. Hence why we need to be people who are regularly asking the question, who knows what God might be doing? And I think so often we don't ask that question. We lash out, God, this is unfair. God is never unfair, but his ways are often unfathomable, especially in the moment. And instead of asking God, what are you doing? It's God, who knows what she might be trying to do or accomplish. And when we lose this ability to hope, I think we really lose the heart of what it means to live a life of faith and participation in life with God. It's easy to become discouraged. It's easy to become spiritually dry. It's easy to feel like God's just running you into the dirt. When we lose the ability to say, who knows, life can easily feel like you've hit a dead end. Some of you, you're like, I am never going to change. God's providence means who knows what God might be doing in your life right now. But when you lose sight of that hope and you're like, this is just the way it is, and I hate myself, but this is how I am, and it's never going to change, you're denying the fact that God is sovereign and he is sovereign for you. And that he's working all things for good. Others of you, you're here and you're in a marriage and you hate it. You don't like your spouse. You don't know how to get out. If you weren't a part of the church, you, you'd probably divorce, but you're afraid to get a divorce here because of the shame that would come. And so you're trying to figure out, how do I manage this? I hate my spouse. I hate our marriage. Things are never going to change. You've lost the ability to say, who knows what God might do? And I can tell you that I know a number of couples in our church right now who love their spouses and thank God for their marriage, who for decades didn't. And they would plead with you to say, don't give up. Don't throw it all away. When we lose the ability to say, who knows, we write people off. They're never going to change. They're never going to respond to the gospel. They're never going to believe. They're always going to be this way. And it leads to dead end after dead end after dead end. A life of faithfulness in exile is a life really of wonder. Who knows what God might be doing? doesn't mean we figure it all out. I love that Mordecai, he doesn't say, this is exactly the reason, Esther. And you, he's got more of a curiosity about it. Who knows? It seems like God might be doing something here. I wonder how our lives would be different 
if we could face every strange moment with that question. Now, one of the, the challenges of providence that I see is oftentimes when we know and learn and actually believe that God is sovereignly for us and he's in control of everything, it can lead to passivity. See that a lot, people like they, they study too much theology and then they think that a life of obedience is doing nothing, except for maybe arguing about theology. They go passive, well God's providentially in control. I remember sitting in a Bible study once with a guy saying, when you go into Baskin Robbins, you have no choice over what flavor ice cream you are going to eat. It's been foreordained before the foundation of the world. And I'm like, is that why you don't do anything? Like you don't do, all you do is argue with people about theology. Well, what this text teaches us is that understanding providence, it actually doesn't lead to passivity. It should lead to participation. Understanding that God is sovereignly ruling over all, it shouldn't lead us to pull back. Esther says, no, he's ruling over all. And the crazy thing is, he invites us to take part in what he's doing. And that's what we see with Esther. Mordecai teaches us about hope. Esther teaches us about faithfulness and really about the nature of faith. The struggle of faith. I mean, I think if we would think logically for a minute, and I were to tell you, God wants you to participate with him in his mission in this world. How many of you are going to yawn and say, like, I just don't have time? Like the sovereign creator over all things who created everything out of nothing, he wants to use you and bring you into what he's doing. I think most of us would say, I can create room in my schedule for that. And yet so often we don't because faith is hard. Participation is hard. It's risky, and that's what we see with Esther. When Mordecai says, you've got to go talk to the king, she responds. This is in chapter 4, verse 11. She says, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death. <laughs> like Xerxes likes his alone time. You're not allowed in, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come in to the king these 30 days. You know, jokes aside, what she's saying is you can't just stroll into the presence of the king. To do so, you'll be put to death. And if you don't remember what happened to the last queen, that, you know, decided to be a little bit bolder, She's been banished from the kingdom. And then on top of all of that, I might be the queen, but I haven't seen the king in 30 days, and you can bet he's not sleeping alone. He's got a whole harem that he's been with, not me. I mean, Esther, she's saying, I get it. Like, this is bad. I get it. You think I should go? But if I go, I'll probably die. He's not going to listen to me. Last week, Pastor Mike said that there are two great temptations that pull us away from a life of faithfulness. One is to just assimilate with the world and with the culture and with circumstances, just go with the flow. And the other is to isolate, kind of close ourselves off from others. And what Esther faces here, she actually faces both at the same time. Like, I'm going to close myself off and just let things be. And I think we face both of those temptations all the time as well.
And I think of the way we're wired in our family upbringing, all sorts of things. Some of you are much more of, I'm just going to go with the flow. I don't want to cause any problems. And others of you are much more, I'm just going to withdraw and separate. We call them introverts. Like, just, just leave me alone. We all have this. And if we're not careful, both of these temptations, they will keep us away from a life of actually stepping in. We're tempted to withdraw or to isolate it in our jobs, in our relationship with others, with our family, with our spouses. It's like we see problems, and we know that a life of faithfulness would mean stepping in, but we just kind of keep our mouth shut maybe. Or if there's a problem in your marriage, you're afraid to speak up, and so you just go along acting like everything's okay. That's assimilating. Or you just grow cold, but you don't actually address the problem. That's isolating. I mean, I, you can use your imagination. We all have ways that we do this. And the root behind it all, what drives this, I think so much of the time, most of the time, if not all the time, what drives this is the same thing that drove Esther here. It's fear. Like we're afraid. We're afraid of having the, the hard conversation or causing a f offense. We're, we're afraid of stepping out in faith because we think that we might be hurt. We're afraid, frankly, that if we obey, God's not going to come through. That's Esther's fear. And I have a pastor friend, he likes to ask, he says, what would you do if you weren't afraid? I think that's a really good question for people. What would you do if you weren't afraid? So how do we get over this fear? Well, something shifts in Esther. And, it, and it's, you know, it's compressed in the story, but... It's fascinating. One minute she's making excuses. I can't do it. It's not me. And then the next minute she's giving orders. Like one minute Mordecai's ordering her and then she starts ordering him around. She says, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish... I perish. Like, that's a big turnaround, right? I can't do it. I'll be killed. And if I die, I die. I'm going to do it. Well, something happened. And what happened is there was this, just this very little, short, just a couple of verses conversation, something that Mordecai says to Esther. Mordecai says to her after she refuses the first time, he says, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So this turning point for Esther, there was a realization she came to. And the realization was, her life's at risk no matter what she does. That's what Mordecai is saying. He's saying if you obey, sure, your life's at risk. For you not to obey, not to step into an act of faith, there's risk inherent in that as well. If you go to the king, you might die, but if you don't step into this moment God has put before you, you will perish. And I think when he says you will perish there, he's not saying you're going to die. Some people interpret it that way, that Mordecai's like, if you don't do this, I'm going to murder you. I don't think that's what's happening. 
Because he says, you and your father's, your father's house will perish. And so I don't think he's talking about her physical death, but we all know that there are ways of perishing. There are ways of losing your life while your heart's still beating, right? Watching an entire people group be wiped out without lifting a finger to help when it's in your power to act, that's one way of perishing. Disobeying what God has called you to do, not living in your identity that God has for you and that, that God has given to you, not living as a person of covenant, compromising who you are at the core of your being. Like it's perishing. Your heart's still beating, but who you are is a different person as a result, and it's not good. And I think that's what Mordecai is saying when he says, Your father's house will perish. He's saying, you were raised. You, you are a daughter of covenant, a daughter of the king. And he's brought you to this place for such a time as this. And if you deny the faith in this moment of crisis, what you're doing is you're casting aside your identity as a daughter of God. That's really stern warning, but that's when Mordecai ends by, by drawing her eyes to providence. I really think he's saying, he's brought you here. Don't perish. In his book, Mike writes that Esther's choice here, brilliantly, he says Esther's choice here, it's not between life and death, it's a choice between death and death. Something is going to die here. She can risk physical death by going to the king, or she can risk dying to who she is as a child of God by just keeping silent. That's the choice she faces. And I would say that's the choice we face every single day as followers of Jesus. Every act of faith requires risk, and I think we don't step out enough because we're afraid, what if I do this? The fear drives us. But we seldom ask, what will happen if I don't step out? Like, we think this way leads to death. If I do this, if I confront this person and say, like, you are drinking too much, or the way you talk to your wife is not good, this needs to be addressed. We're afraid if I do that, man, the relationship could die. They could, there could be backlash. They could... We never stop and think, but what if I, we rarely stop and think, but what if I don't say anything? We never think about the death of what will happen there. Are you guys with me on this? Marriage, you have a problem in your marriage? I don't want to say anything because it will upset them and I don't want to fight. You're afraid if I step in, it'll be risky. Have you ever considered the risk of not stepping in? Where's that going to leave you a year from now, five years from now, ten years from now? Where's that going to leave your relationship? I mean, this goes to every area of the Christian life. I see it in particular in the area of generosity. Like, I think most people want to be known as being generous. I won't have a show of hands, but anyone want to be known as being stingy and greedy? No, we want to be generous. But generosity, it's a pretty rare thing, even in the church. Living a life of radical generosity. Why? Because we're afraid if we're generous, we're, it's risky. I'm like, what'll happen if we're generous? Like, we need to store. We never stop and ask, what happens if we're not generous? We never stop and ask, what happens if, if I just cling to everything I have with white knuckles? We never ask, what is that going to, how is that going to shape my heart? 
how is that going to lead me to trust more and more in myself instead of the God who rules and reigns over all? Every act of obedience, every act of faithfulness is an act of risk. But I would say every non-act is an act of risk as well. Like life is just risky. But if you're going to go one way or another, I would rather take a risk with the God who sovereignly rules over all and providentially rules over all. I would rather take the risk stepping into the call he has and trying to preserve my life by my own ingenuity. We think that the path of least resistance is the safest one. But then we end up missing out on the life God has for us and how he wants to use us. And I think so many people, they stall out on their growth because they don't want to risk. And so they live a life of, I'll just say it's a life of faith, like faithless mediocrity where, where you're just in this in-between place where you believe in God, but you're not risking for him. And you're actually actively trying to manage everything and control everything. We can't control everything. Like every single one of us is going to die. The question is, are we going to step in faith, trusting God, even when it doesn't make sense in the moment? Are we going to try to keep our hands in control of our life and lose our souls? Or at least lose the life that God has for us? Esther, she recognizes the risks on both sides. And she steps into the life of faithfulness and she says, if I perish, I perish. You know, it reminds me of Paul. To live is Christ, to die is gain. This is what God has for me. I'm going to step into it. I don't care the consequences. And Karen Job, she notes that because Esther steps in, she gets to play this central role in God's work of redemption. Because she responds, that's why the book's called the book of Esther and not the book of Mordecai. Because up to this point, it's like, book of Esther, it's like the book of Mordecai. Mordecai didn't have to make the choice she had to make. He didn't have to step in and risk everything like she did. In Karen Job's, in that, that commentary, she says, throughout the book of Esther, Esther is mentioned 37 times. 14 times she's referred to as Queen Esther. And she says 13 of those 14 times happen after this verse. Job's writes, Esther assumes the dignity and power of her royal position only after she claims her true identity as a woman of God. Esther lives in to the life of faith and boldness after she claims that she's a child of God. And so I recognize this sermon's pretty broad. I also know that it probably hits with most of you on some level. Like everyone's dealing with something in life that doesn't make sense. Everyone has an act of faith that they need to step into or retreat or they're tempted to retreat from. I don't know what it is for you, but, but you do. And so what would it look like for you to recognize the risk on both sides and step forward in an act of obedience? I'm convinced that in the Christian life, a lot of people, what happens is they're soaring along in faith and in growth, and then a moment happens. Maybe it's a sin that they get sucked into. Maybe it's an act of obedience that God calls them to that they refuse. And then they just kind of, instead of making progress, they kind of enter a holding pattern. And I'm not saying they're not saved. I'm not saying God doesn't love them. I'm just saying their growth stops because they refuse to step out in faith. What would it look like for you to step out and to move forward. As we move to communion, 
it's important to remember that while Mordecai and Esther are great models for us, and they are great models, I think, in this text, it's important to remember that our salvation isn't based upon our obedience, and that Esther, she, in many ways, she was just a shadow of another who would come along and say in the garden before his crucifixion, I don't want to drink this cup. Not my will, yours be done. Which I think is Jesus' way of saying, if I perish, I perish. And he did on the cross for us. And so as we come to the table, we're remembered of Christ's body that was broken for us. We're remembered of his blood that was poured out on our behalf so that we might be called children of God. So if you're here and you're a Christian and you feel conviction, maybe you feel guilt, maybe you feel overwhelmed, maybe you feel discouraged, beat down, the table is a place where we come and we are reminded of the love God has for us and that God saves us single-handedly. But knowing that God saves us single-handedly doesn't mean that we don't have things that he calls us to step into. And so the table is a place where we can celebrate the love that he's shown us. We can be assured of our salvation, but it's also a place where we can come and we can ask the hard questions. Okay, God, what do I need to step into? Where am I not listening? Where am I operating out of fear? If you're here and you're not a Christian, we ask that you not take part in this meal, but you take part in Jesus Christ who gave his life to save yours. Let me pray.